Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, a reminder that though you have all perfection and life and glory and goodness in yourself, you long to be with us and to communicate to us, sharing that blessedness and peace that we so long for, sharing that righteousness and holiness that we so deeply lack, and we thank you that in your word you give and you grace, and you pour forth in love and mercy all that is yours, that you might fill us through Jesus Christ, the one who is the fullness of all that is in all. And we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was a cold Friday morning in Washington, D.C. in January of 2007 when a young man found his way into one of the busiest train stations in town. Like many before and after, he set up shop by one of the main entrances and he pulled out his violin, he put the case on the ground threw a few dollars in to start the project, and he began to play. It's not an abnormal sight on a busy morning as people went and came on their way to work, and he looked very normal, tattered jeans, a t-shirt, a large coat at his feet, and he played for about 45 minutes, and over a thousand people passed by. Only one stopped and paused, a small child on her way to school. And in that 45 minutes, having put in a few bucks of seed money, he walked away with $32.17. A very normal morning and a very commonplace occurrence. Seemingly a, a homeless person, a passerby, stopping, playing, making enough money to make it through the day. Little did they know, though, that this was not a random man. He had been planted there by the Washington Post. Little did they know that he was not playing an ordinary instrument, but a three and a half million dollar Stradivarius violin. Little did they know that he was not some untrained person, but two nights before had played with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, for which people had paid hundreds of dollars to sit and to listen. 
Little did they know that it was Joshua Bell, one of the handful of most acclaimed violinists in the entire world. And yet they walked. And perhaps they stopped long enough to throw a quarter in. It's easy, perhaps, to laugh at the oddity of missing the glorious in the everyday, and yet we do that all the time, don't we? We watch the news, we talk with one another, we gather around at the end of the day, we share our stories, and they seem so pedestrian. They seem so ordinary and mundane. And Peter, in these verses, I think, offers a startling word Much like, no doubt, that Washington Post headline startled those who had passed by and missed the glory right there in front of them, Peter, in these verses, slows us down and makes us very aware of what's going on in our midst. I trust this week you're watching the news. Fights and elections, tensions and drama, storms and chaos, it can seem busying and harrowing and overwhelming, and yet it can seem so chaotic as to lack any common thread, any purpose, any sort of order. And Peter here gives our lives order. Peter here prompts us to see something running through all the cacophony of stories, all the scattered chaos of our lives. And I think we see three things that Peter wants us to know that frame our day-to-day living. First, in these verses, we read, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. It's as widely encompassing as could possibly be. It's as urgent and immediate as could possibly be stated. All things right to hand. All things ending, a word that in the Bible more often means reaching an appointed goal or purpose than being terminated or cut off. This is less saying that the gas or the electricity is about to be shut off by the company or the provider. It's more like saying that the end or destination of a a long journey is about to be reached. The goal, the The aim, the end that we have been granted by God is right to hand. It is coming. Surely that's a startling word for Peter's immediate audience as for us. This was a group that we read in chapter 1 have been scattered. They have been exiled. They They have wandered around the Mediterranean world. They have had to leave familiarity. They had have to leave comfort and the known for the unknown and the mysterious. They have been on a journey and a pilgrimage of geographic proportions. And underneath that, they have, like you and I, experienced spiritual struggle. They are, in chapter 2, identified as exiles, sojourners, those on their way, those who have begun a journey but have not yet reached their destination. And it's to those who would go to another land and seek a greater city, that we read this word, the end of all things is just to hand. Peter here in these final chapters addresses time quite frequently. 
Time is a major concern. Earlier in chapter 4 and verse 2, he has said that we're to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so he speaks of the rest of time that we give to God in service. In verse 3, he then says, the time that's past, that suffices for pursuing the passions of the flesh and living as the Gentiles do. And later in the chapter, in verse 17, he'll speak of a time that's appointed for judgment when God returns to set things right. He is alert to the passage of time. He understands what you understand at the end of a day or a week as you scroll back and think through the many things you've experienced The many things you wish you'd said, but you didn't have the backbone or the wherewithal in that moment. The occasions you wish you'd served, but for whatever reason, you didn't feel you had the energy or the means to do so. The many moments where you experienced delight and glory, but it seemed to pass so quickly, didn't it? And before you knew it, it was gone. Those occasions where you enjoy closeness and love with those who are brothers and sisters, neighbors and family and friends, and yet just as quickly seemed to fight and bicker. He understands the passage of time, and he speaks of how time is being framed and redeemed by God. There is an appointed goal and end. You watch the six o'clock news, of course, and you don't experience this. Every story is like unto itself. There is no grand narrative. There is no goal. There is no climax or denouement. There is simply a buffet of stories, tragedies and comedies, each in their own form. But Peter says to that chaos and to the passage of time that each of us experiences every day, there is an end to all things, to every experience, good and bad, and it is right to hand. And Peter doesn't just tell us this so that like prophets, we might like look forward and and guess well and wager uh, upon the way in which things will end, that we might have some hidden knowledge, that we might amongst all our peers know more of when Christ will return, when the kingdom will be fulfilled. No, he tells us this so that we might live differently. Because one of the crucial things we find in the New Testament, and especially in 1 Peter, is this remarkable truth that knowing the future shapes how you live into the present. That knowing the way in which the story will end shapes the way in which you behave throughout its course. This is something we experience throughout life. Some of you perhaps will know the story of the remarkable doctor, writer, and now deceased witness to Christ, Paul Kalanithi, who a year ago published his remarkable memoirs, When Breath Becomes Air. And Dr. Kalanithi was a world-renowned brain surgeon serving at Stanford University Medical School. And he was in his mid-30s when he received a horrific diagnosis of stage 4 lung cancer. And he realized very quickly his life as he'd imagined and planned and trained, and as he seemed so gifted to be on the path to, it had changed dramatically. And the memoir describes how his preparation played out in his suffering and eventually in his death as his widow recounts it 
in the finale. But he comments on his diagnosis and how that affected the living of his life. These are his words. He says, grand illnesses are supposed to be life-clarifying. Instead, I knew I was going to die, but I'd known that before. My state of knowledge was the same, but my ability to make lunch plans had been shot. The way forward would seem obvious if only I knew how many months or years I had left. Tell me three months, I'd spend time with family. Tell me one year, I'd write a book. Give me ten years, and I'd get back to treating diseases. The truth that I live one day at a time did not help. What was I supposed to do with that one day? It's a remarkable reminder that lack of clarity about the future can have a stultifying effect. It can leave us in a position of disarray. We see this so powerfully in stories of the financial collapse a decade ago. As you encounter different portrayals of that, none of which I can commend or have any expert opinion on the validity and truth of them, but as you observe them, you see certain principles illustrated across them regarding how knowledge of the future shapes behavior in the present. So you can watch a movie like Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, which I can't say will be a classic, but nonetheless had its moment in the sun, and you can hear the infamous Gordon Gecko identify speculation as the mother of all evil, saying that speculating about the future is what causes all financial evil and misbehavior. Not knowing how things will end leads to all manner of misbehavior. Or you can watch the movie The Big Short and you can see the epigram right there at the beginning that it's not what we don't know that kills us, but it's what we know to be the case that just isn't so. It's precisely when we think that we know the future, that we know how things will end, that we are most in jeopardy, when we have false confidence. And Peter here wants to give us rock-solid confidence. He wants to give us a frame for where the story is going. He wants to Help us see how the end of all things changes how we live in the here and now. And so in verse 7, he goes on to speak of how, therefore, we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. It's a rather remarkable word to call people to be sober. The opposite, of course, is drunkenness. Perhaps you wouldn't think a church congregation needs to be told, don't be drunk. But it would seem Saturday night is not so far away. And it would seem that the misperception, the lack of clarity, that we can so identify with drunkenness is not simply a struggle for those out there leading the debaucherous lifestyles of the world, but can take hold even in the lives of the faithful. That like the drunk, we can lack clarity. Like the drunk, we can so easily be off balance Like the drunk, we can be unaware of our surroundings. Like the drunk, we can so easily lead lives that are not marked by sober-minded clarity or by self-control, but by excess, by impulsiveness, by failure to be observant of those around us and looming threats. And so Peter tells us, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. He's addressed this word already. He's commended in chapter 1, verse 13, this call to be sober-minded. He'll return to it in chapter 5, verse 8, when again he calls the congregations to sober-mindedness. 
But he unpacks what it means. What does it mean to think straight, to see things as they really are, to not live like a spiritual drunk? You've got to know the end of all things. You've got to know a few very crucial things that frame the story. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he's told them that they're a chosen race, they're a holy nation, they're a royal priesthood, they're a people for God's own possession. They have this remarkable identity. But he immediately tells them that that identity is not something they are to keep unto themselves. It's not of their own doing. They once weren't even a people, but now they're God's own people by his mercy. They have not accomplished this on their own. And because they've not accomplished it on their own, they're not to live it out to their own glory. Rather, they're to live it such that they proclaim the excellencies of Him, of Jesus Christ. And because our life is by grace, our life is for another's glory. And so they have an end that exceeds themselves, an end that goes beyond their own identity, their own name, their own reputation. They live for God. But you know, there's a remarkable turn in chapter 2. The same Peter who's told them that they're a chosen race and a holy people and a, a royal priesthood then identifies them as exiles and sojourners. Those who are kings and priests are migrants and passers-by. And Peter tells them that they live in a season where they await the return of Christ and the public demonstration of His glory And he commends this journey. He commends this pilgrimage that they're all on, apparently, as a way of living before the Gentiles in an honorable way so that they will see their good works and give glory to their Father who is in heaven. They must know this. If they, if we don't know this, we live like drunks. We live like those who don't perceive what's really going on if we don't understand the name and identity we've been given, then we don't know the seriousness and responsibility of our calling. But if we don't also understand the time and the season that glory is not ours now, but that we're called to suffer, we're called to be exiles, we're called to sojourn and wander well, then we won't live as befits the kingdom of God. We won't live to love our neighbor. And so Peter tells us, In chapter 2, verse 12, they're to keep their conduct honorable among these Gentiles. And he gives them examples that we've seen in previous studies that he commends how they behave at work, how they interact in the political sphere, how they relate at home amongst the relationships of husbands and wives. And he talks about how they're to struggle and suffer well so that they might honor Christ and live honorably amongst the Gentiles, giving good Solid witness, we might say. But there's one thing he unpacks here about this self-controlled, sober-minded living that goes beyond what he said prior. And it's the third thing we see. He speaks of how the end of all things is at hand. He speaks of how we're to live in a self-controlled, sober-minded way. But third, he talks about how this life of self-control, this life of clarity and sober-mindedness moves us together, not apart. And that's a remarkable word because that's not intuitive or natural. Think about the way in which we think of the apocalyptic end, the the terror, the overwhelming 
event that somehow ends all things. You see this in literature, in movies. It continues to mark the public imagination. We see from time to time stories of those who've built survivalist cabins out in the woods. And they expect some event, some nuclear meltdown, some war of the worlds to end all things. And where do they go? Never to the city. When the end of all things comes, you head for the hills. You get away. Danger leads to isolation. And you know what? That's not just true. In the great myths of stories and and tales of, of the end of the world, that's true every day on the highway. When I drive down 95 and I see a dangerous driver, what do I do? Cozy up closely next to them and offer commentary or suggestion? No, not in my saner moments. When I see someone weaving and driving erratically, I either, in my saner moments, sit back well behind them, or perhaps in a moment of a little more excitement, I quickly speed past and get away. I allow a lot of space so that whatever nonsense they're doing, it doesn't encroach on me. It doesn't put me in jeopardy. I'm pretty sure you do the same thing. When we see the end of all things, when we see danger and threat, we isolate ourselves. We isolate ourselves. We move apart. Every gated community speaks to this natural instinct. Every relational pause and caution. You want to get to know somebody? You'd like to have that conversation, but you're scared of being hurt, of being in an awkward situation? of experiencing some sort of threat. And so you sit back. It's a natural survivalist instinct. And yet Peter here says that as we lead a sober-minded, self-controlled lifestyle, it brings us together. It doesn't tear us apart. And he says it in three ways. They're rather remarkable. And they're not difficult to understand, but they're a remarkable calling to remember. He says, first of all, that we are to love earnestly in verse 8. And he prioritizes this. Above all, or first of all, you're to love earnestly. Notice, he doesn't say, when you've got some extra, love with it. He doesn't say, when you're experiencing life in a plush and rather comfortable way, love from the excess or from the margins. In other words, love is not a luxury. Love is something to be done earnestly with vigor, with vitality, and it's also prioritized. Above all, or first of all, love. We oftentimes think of love and and care for others as something we do once we're taken care of. So, for instance, I will give to charity or bless others with my resources once I've taken care of me and mine. Peter blows that whole expectation up. First of all, you love others trusting that God takes care of you and yours. Love is is not an option for a fat year, as it were. But love is a priority and an earnest calling and a privilege and responsibility. And we are drawn together by prioritizing caring for one another. And so love, the tangible care and commitment to doing others well, it's a priority and it's to be lived out earnestly. Secondly, we see that we're called to show hospitality without grumbling. This is one of those tangible ways that love plays out. In the ancient world in particular, 
It's unlike the experience you and I have. If, if you're traveling about, there are not Motel 6s on the road. There are no hotels, by and large, in the typical city. We oftentimes think, because of Christmas stories, that there were a lot of, of options for Joseph and Mary. It's as though they were along the beach, and it just so happened that it was snowbird season and all the rooms were taken. It can be somewhat uh, sort of misinforming our expectations of the ancient world. The Mediterranean world of the first century was a world where it's very rare to find an inn. And so it wasn't surprising that there was no room in the inn in Bethlehem. If you're traveling, if you're moving about for work, it's incredibly harrowing. It's, it's to be vulnerable. It's to be exposed not only to nature, which we can see even this week, the difficulties of that, but also to marauding villains who would plunder you, who would take what you have, who would possibly kill you. And so hospitality mattered a lot. If you're on the road for business, as many and most had to be, you're exposed unless someone welcomes you in. And so one of the most frequent things we hear about in the early decades of the church is the need to welcome in other Christians as they're on the road. We see this even in Paul and Peter's letters, even in 2nd and 3rd John. And here, Peter commends these exiles to show hospitality to one another, to meet others' needs. To do so, of course, is to expose yourself to danger. To show hospitality can put you in a position of potential harm. It puts you out at the very least, and it exposes you oftentimes to threat. And yet you're to do it without grumbling. You're to see it as a calling and not simply a cost. You're to see it as an opportunity, not simply some sort of hindrance or expense. You're to do it without grumbling, but with a cheerful heart. And third, Peter tells us we're to see everything we have as gifts for service. It's important to note the startling word that he commends us unto here. In chapter 2, he said that we are a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're a people for his own possession. We have been called royal. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, we have an inheritance of God himself. We are royal daughters and sons of the Most High King. That sounds, frankly, pretty ritzy, and you can get excited about that, can't you? And here, he calls you a steward. He calls you a low, menial servant. He says you are to see everything you have as an opportunity for service or stewardship. And of course, the reminder that we get earlier at the end of chapter 2 is that we see this lived out in fleshly form in Jesus of Nazareth. That he has eternal glory as the one true king, the king of kings and lord of lords, and yet he doesn't live that out in such a way to remain distant and safe, but he moves close and he condescends and he dwells amongst us. And he even gives everything that he has to the point of giving his very life that we might have life. And he bears our death that we might no longer suffer its threat. And as we look at that Christ at the end of chapter 2 and as we consider all that he has been for us, we Remember that every good, every blessing that we have is not simply for us alone, but it, it is meant to pour through us as a conduit of service to others. We're reminded here, every good we have is a gift. 
Paul, of course, told the Corinthians, what do you have that you were not given? You might think, of course, uh, that your wealth, your success, your reputation is because you've worked hard, and frankly, because you're very sharp. But Paul and Peter would remind you, you had teachers at home or in school, and more significantly, you had someone who disposed you with skill and competency that you might be able and capable of doing well. You did not design your IQ. You did not somehow build all that you've built or accomplish all that you've accomplished in your own strength. What do you have but has been given you? And Peter says you're to take everything that's been given you as something that can be given over to others in service. It is not for yourself, but it is for you to share with others. He's expanding on that idea in chapter 2 that we are to lead our lives as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, remembering that priests always mediate. A priest is never the end of the story. He calls you royal, but he calls you royal only as he calls you a royal priest. And a priest doesn't simply get God. A priest gets God that they might bring others unto God. And then they might bring God unto their neighbors. A priest is, by definition, a mediator, an intermediary. Someone who bridges a gap and holds people together. And just as Christ is the mediator of all, the one who has reconciled God and humanity, so Christ has called us to walk in His footsteps and to go in His name and to be ambassadors, to be those who proclaim who He is and what He's done and to use every resource, every ability, every opportunity we have as a gift to serve others, to bring them more closely to God in Jesus Christ. And so in at least these three ways, we see that being sober-minded and self-controlled involves drawing us more closely together, not ripping us apart. And I suggest that in times like these, when skepticism and fear can so easily set in, as we think about relationships in the most intimate circumstances that can cause pain and disappointment, or we think about rifts in our culture that you observe on the news and in your neighborhood, that we see that one of the great gifts of the gospel is that we can experience a clear view of reality and have it draw us together rather than rip us apart. And that's a remarkable gift for a world that as we see more often than not, as we come to know things, we we find ourselves divided, rent asunder, over and against each other, at each other's throats sometimes, that one of the most profound gifts of the gospel is drawing us together to Christ in the form of His body as we find unity not only with God, but in God with one another. And that's a reminder of where Peter closes this section and where we can conclude this morning in verse 11. A reminder that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, for it's to Him that belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the end described in one sentence the end that is so close to hand, the end of all things, things that seem very religious and things that seem but distracting at best, 
and heinously evil at worst, that they all eventually lead to power and glory, to dominion and praise, being given unto the only wise God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's revealed in Jesus Christ. And just as difficult as it is to believe that the ups and downs of your day and the varied stories on the news, that they can all really lead to God's praise and glory. So it's significant to remember the life of Jesus. If you wrote that tale of his Passion Week, would it really seem obvious that God was receiving glory? I submit it wouldn't. If you were like the disciples on Thursday, you would feel as though we were losing our way. You would feel the loss of a leader. You would feel the fear of knowing others are looking, questioning, threatening you. As you wrote the tale of that Friday, you would experience anguish. I dare say you wouldn't find a way to write it but to use the imagery of darkness overwhelming, seemingly palpable darkness that marks the death accounts of Christ. And as you told the tale of that weekend, as you lived it, I imagine that you, perhaps at your best moments like those disciples, would find yourself on Emmaus Road that Sunday morning saying, we thought things were going somewhere well. We thought he was going to restore the kingdom. We thought thought God was going to be shown to be all in all. And yet that experience, those days that seem so dark, so scattered, so oppressive, so overwhelming, we now know with hindsight are the moments when God's glory was closest and the occasions that provide the most crucial in giving life unto others. And if that's true, how can we not apply the same lens to your own struggle this day? If it's really, if it's really possible that as the Son of God is being crucified upon the cross, that God is smiling upon His people and giving us the greatest grace and gift we could possibly imagine, is it really that hard for us to believe that even now, even now with the disease, even now with the the besetting sin, even now with the, the ruptured relationship that haunts us, God could be bringing glory close. And God could be in our very midst. And God's name could be raised by our faithfulness, our sober-mindedness, our self-control, our love for one another. And so we're reminded that even in dark days, even in chaotic moments, glory and dominion belong to God. Because this God has revealed Himself already in Jesus Christ and in His passion. And so as we go from this place this day... I would encourage you, I would encourage you that like Christ, you take up the words we'll soon sing, that our lives would be given unto God, that they would be for His kingdom and His glory, and that like Christ, you would embrace the possibility that that even in struggle and even in situations of pain and anguish, we would find God to be all in all and capable of providing for us, that we might know His power and strength made perfect even in our weakness and frailty. Let's pray and ask Him to make it so. Father, we thank You that You are all in all. We confess we feel so incapable, so lacking, and yet You have granted great grace and mercy in Jesus, and You have revealed Your true nature to us in Him and through Him. We thank You that You show Yourself to be a God of mercy and grace 
that though you forget not sin and you punish it to the third or fourth generation, you commend your kindness to us that you remember your covenant promises to the thousandth generation. And that knowing the love of Jesus, we can always turn yet again to you, asking for your grace and peace this day. And so we pray that this word, through your apostle, might be a word of comfort and of calling and a reminder that we see reality as it really is in light of your gospel. We pray this in the name of the risen Son, our Savior, even Jesus. Amen.